BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, it's Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, and the host of Friend of a Friend, a show where we sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring conversations about building something from the ground up. Today, we're talking with Jesse Israel, a social entrepreneur and the founder of The Big Quiet, on how he went from being a record label executive to leading some of the largest mass meditations in the world. The Big Quiet is a movement that gathers thousands of people at a time for mass meditations at the most iconic places in the world, like Madison Square Garden, the top of the World Trade Center, and under the Blue Whale at the American Museum of Natural History. But this isn't a normal meditation practice. Once you open your eyes, The Big Quiet becomes a social gathering where bands like Miguel, local natives, and Arcade Fire performed. In 2019, The Big Quiet set off on their first ever mass meditation tour, selling out epic locations in 10 cities around the world. And this year, they were invited to go on tour with Oprah and WW to speak and lead mass meditations at sold-out arenas throughout the U.S. Super casual. In this episode, Jesse walked me through his mental health journey from a burnt-down record executive and gives his insight on how to redefine the idea of meditation for anyone who's a cynic. He also lends his advice on how we should lean into silence, especially in the time of coronavirus, in the hopes of discovering something new. We also switch things up a little bit in this episode, so make sure you stick around for the end because Jesse guides us through a five-minute meditation to kickstart your day. As always, if you like what you hear, don't forget to leave us a review on the podcast page and head to my Instagram every Thursday for a recap of the episode on our mini-series, The Friendly Files. Here's my friend, Jesse Israel. I've heard so much about you. I've heard such great things. You as well. Where are you right now? I am in LA, thank God. Where are you? I'm in LA as well. I actually moved to LA after 17 years in New York in January. So it's been a really interesting time to adjust. I was actually on tour for the first couple months of the year and three days after the tour ended, the pandemic hit. So my first like official days actually in LA were once the pandemic kicked in. So it's just been a strange time. <laughs> I can totally relate to that. I've been in New York for nine years now and I was like slowly starting to do the same thing back in December. Then this happened and I was like, whoa, I'm having this crazy identity crisis because I have not lived here since I was 18 years old and I have no idea like what's cool to do in LA. I don't know where to go. Like, and that feels really weird to be a stranger in your own hometown. 
you nailed it. That's exactly how I've been feeling too. I know. It's really weird. But so I always like to start the show, where are you from and where do you live now? Which is pretty much the same thing <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I am from Los Angeles, California. And after living in New York for 17 years, I just moved back home to Los Angeles and I'm in Venice. Can you tell us a little bit about, and I always ask this question because I feel like everybody labels themselves differently these days, but can you tell us a little about a little bit about what it is that you do and how you label yourself if you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm the founder of The Big Quiet. That is my company. And we organize mass meditation events at some of the most iconic places in the world. So we bring huge groups of people together for moments of quiet. And then when people open their eyes, we have musicians perform special musical performances. I'm also a meditation teacher. I train executives and leaders and humans in how to meditate and have to have a self-sufficient meditation practice for life. A public speaker. I speak a lot about community building and the importance of quiet and self-reflection in the age of noise. And I used to run a record label for 10 years. So entertainment and startup culture is a, a big part of my framing for how I look at wellness and well-being right now. And I'm a 35-year-old man as well. (laughs) Multi-hyphenate, we love to hear it. I would love to hear a little bit about what sparked your curiosity of wellness, especially from a young age and probably as a person who grew up in LA, which is like known for its wellness culture. Yeah, so (laughs) it really actually started when I was in sixth grade. I don't know why. I don't know why. This is a sort of a strange, strange fact. But when, so when I was in sixth grade in the nineties, there was this low fat craze that like, that like swept the nation, you know, diet's different now. A lot of people will tell you that like healthy fat's really good for you. There's this period when like everything was supposed to be low fat. So I got, I got really into and interested in low fat diets as like a, as like a young sixth grade dude. Can you elaborate a little bit? about like what that means as a sixth grader? Like how far did your knowledge expand? Like what was the obsession? Like I would ask my parents for the reduced fat lunch snacks. And like when I would go to Taco Bell, I would order off of the, off of the Fiesta menu, which no longer exists, but that was like the light, like the low calorie menu. I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. I was, I think I was just always really into self-improvement. I think I was into it because I saw that it was something that um, my dad was into and that, you know, people that were interested in bettering themselves were into. So that, that's really when it started for me. But as I grew into manhood, I was always really interested in, in being vocal about the, the challenges that were going on in my life and talking about the opportunities for learning and growth. And it was something that started to become really important to me. Once I was in my 20s, I was running a record label I just graduated from NYU where I started my label and I was working pretty hard and I was 23. I was already burnt out and I was getting hit with, with pretty debilitating anxiety. I was having panic attacks for the first time and was just experiencing a lot of discomfort and, and was having trouble making sense of it. It didn't feel like something that I was supposed to be experiencing because I had this cool company that was growing and I was young and doing all this, you know, interesting work. But the reality was I was, I was feeling pretty lonely, especially in New York, I was feeling isolated through the experiences that I was having with kind of my own mental health stuff. And I didn't really feel like as a man, it was something that I could talk about with my peers. Definitely wasn't a conversation I was having in the music industry. So it created in me, I think a real need to have space and community 
to be able to talk about those real challenges, but also to have tools that could help me grow through and, and move through those, those challenges on a personal level. And that's when I got into meditation. You know, I was, I was in my early 20s and really felt that call to figure out how to, how to you know, work through this stuff. Yeah, I can definitely identify with that feeling of going from LA to New York and being completely immersed in the hustle and bustle culture that like I didn't really know much of in Los Angeles. And I actually can't imagine what it was like as a male because I feel like New York has like such a kind of like toxic male energy where it's like, it's all about the hustle. It's very money driven. And I can imagine that being really challenging for you to feel that pressure at a young age. Yeah, I I was, I was running a business. I I wasn't planning to be running a business while in college or fresh out of New York in a nutshell, by the way. Right. (laughs) I had one too. I, I started this when I was in college and I eventually like when I got out a few years later, I was like, what was I doing? Like I was 20, like the stress, I didn't even enjoy that. But like, that's like what New York totally injects into you. So true. That's cool that you started this in college too. I hadn't realized that. I love that we share that comment. I, I, I know for me, I had always, I think growing up in Los Angeles, growing up in an affluent neighborhood and being around a lot of privilege, the way that I sort of made sense of being a man and the way that I understood masculinity to be was through building businesses or moving up you know, within a corporate infrastructure, hustling working super hard, which I do respect with, I would say, balance, (laughs) but really going hard always and achieving and acquiring, conquering, applying power to what we do. So when I was in my early 20s and running this record label, I was just marrying what I thought men did, which was you work really fucking hard. And my mental well-being and my physical well-being was something that there was no conversation around and was very much secondary. And it wasn't until I started having those panic attacks where I I remember just feeling into my body and knowing that this was not a sustainable way for me to keep going. I looked unhealthy. I had, I was getting sick often. I had trouble sleeping. I was really like, I was very sexually disconnected. You know, I would, I would, you know, with women that I was seeing, I would have trouble like feeling connected with them or even being able to get aroused, right? I was just so like blocked. And um, realized that I really needed to do something about it and start to shift my perspective around success and my perspective around connection and my priorities around how to live a successful life and to understand that it wasn't just about scale, growth, revenue, power, income, that those things are important, but that there's a lot more to place into the priorities list to be able to live an enjoyable life. Took me a lot of years to be able to click with that. And I'd say that's something I'm still very much exploring the balance of. It's so interesting because I feel like, you know, if you zoom out, you're, you said you were in your early 20s and you had your own record label. And I know you were working with bands like MGMT, which like at the time was a huge thing. So to the outside world, like you are successful and thriving and it's like all all great and amazing. But I wonder what it was, like what was that moment that you realized that it wasn't a fulfilling space for you? And that took you away from that and more into the meditation space. Yeah. So while I was running the label and making sense of being a young guy running a record label and some of the stuff that we've talked about and really understanding the music industry and music culture, which is can be very party oriented and very hardworking. And a lot of nightlife. A lot of nightlife. <laughs> yeah. Weird hours. Yeah. You know, so I was 
continuing to, to stay committed to the work, but was also through having a meditation practice, was starting to realize that there were elements of the work that weren't clicking. I started to experience less stress and less anxiety. And in, and in, in having that experience, started to get more clear about what I really cared about and how I could bring more connection to my work. So that the first part of that was, was not just leaving my company. And I'll get to, I'll get to your, your answer in a second. The first part of that was, all right, I'm starting to feel a bit more clear about who I am and what I stand for. How can I align that with my work within my record label? So I was able to start to apply that to, to that space. And I found that you know I'd, I'd be at music festivals with my peers from the music industry, managers or musicians that were about to go on stage. And we'd be backstage meditating together. You know, We'd be literally in the face of tons of noise, getting silent together. And then I noticed that when we would open our eyes, people felt more comfortable talking about the real shit that was happening for them. And I started to realize that I wasn't the only person going through a lot of that, that personal discomfort, that it was quite common for my peers in the music industry, regardless of how successful they were. And having those conversations in community, in, in places like, you know, Coachella, you know, yeah. places where you could, <laughs> wouldn't expect to have these types of conversations. Even a second of silence. Um, right. Felt, it felt special. And I wanted to figure out how I could create more community around connection in this way. And I continued to experiment with it in different ways. Actually, one of the ways that I, that I, I played with this was because I've always loved gathering people for different reasons. I had a cheeseburger club. You know, that was like really my, my first community building experience from, from getting a sense of the importance of community in the music industry, like I described, was, all right, how can I start to bring this to my personal life? So we had this cheeseburger club. It was 10 buddies and I, and we'd eat a different burger every two weeks. And, you know, on the outside, it was, let's eat burgers and drink beers and be men. But what was really happening was that on a, on a you know, bi-monthly basis, we were gathering to talk about things that we were exploring and experiencing as men. You know, it, it really was kind of like early men's group. We're seeing a lot of that stuff today. And it was great to be able to have vulnerable and fun space with my male peers. And I loved being in the role of organizing those gatherings. I was the commissioner of the Burger Boys of New York. And when I saw that chapters of our burger club started opening up in other cities in the US and Europe, I realized that there was a need for this. My next step, and this is when I was still running my label, was to further expand the experience of community outside of a burger restaurant and into the streets. So I started a, a bike club called Cyclones, which still exists today. And the idea was just to have friends come together to ride bikes and to go on adventures and support local businesses and you know see parts of the city we'd never seen before. First Cyclones ride was 18 people. And by the end of that summer, we had you know hundreds of people showing up for our rides, taking over the streets. And I saw that by giving people permission to show up on bikes and do something besides going to bars or clubs in New York, which I did and enjoyed too. But you know, having an alternative to gather and to do it in a way that was kind of uncomfortable, right? You're on bikes, you're getting sweaty, you don't really know where you're going. It, it creates opportunities to meet new people. Some really special connections were born from that. And again, I loved being in the role of facilitating and gathering those experiences. So about six years ago, I just really felt like it was time. I was feeling into, really on an intuitive level, that it was time to, to really move on from my role as, as running this record label on Tech Fund and to see how I could start to give my gifts and apply my passion to gathering people and, and, to, and to share the experiences that have been so valuable for me in my life. 
So the first experiment, once I left my label, was to do that around meditation. And it, that at this point, at this point, we're coming up on about five year anniversary to the Big Quiet. But the the, the first gathering was twenty people in my buddy's apartment, and I had no idea what it was going to be. I had no plan for a business model or any of that. And, you know, I had a, a few months of savings from my time at my label where I could experiment a little bit. I was really lucky to be able to do that. And I saw that at that first, at that first gathering, it's, it was called Medi Club. It actually still exists. It's what the Big Quiet was born out of. I just saw something really special happen. And it was, you know, young people, super busy, also stressed out, slowing down, talking about real shit. And, and, you know, I think feeling safe and feeling an opportunity for healing and validation in a city that could be really unforgiving. Okay, so I am not a meditation cynic, but I can't meditate to save my life. And I wonder, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people share that sentiment, but I'm never, I'm not opposed to continuing to try it, but I'm sure that you have a lot of people that also come to you with that same issue. And I wonder what you say to the cynics who aren't able to like fully get into a meditative state. Yes. So I do hear that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so <sure> common. <laughs> and you know, what, what I like to remind people of or tell people is that there, there's a misconception that meditation is one thing and it means silencing your thoughts. The reality is there are lots of different styles of meditation and this concept that meditating like a monk being the only way to meditate is not realistic for most of us. And there are ways to address our thoughts in meditation that allow us to uh, be witness to them, to welcome them, to work with them, and still experience tremendous benefit without having the mind go still or go silent. So what I remind people of is that it's okay if your mind wanders. It's really common. Most of us have a different thought every six seconds or so. So the brain is just cruising. <laughs> Our brains are designed to think. When we're trying not to think, we wind up thinking more. And when we give ourselves permission to let our mind do its thing and just to, to be witness to what the mind does and then return to whatever technique or practice that we're practicing, we wind up creating an opportunity for the mind and body to start to settle. Sometimes when we practice meditation, the mind is racing. But when we're being gentle with ourselves and following whatever the technique may be, going back to your breath, going back to a mantra, or being gentle and easy with ourselves, when the mind is racing, it's actually unstressing. It's releasing stress from the body in a cellular level. It's not a bad thing. And when we have meditations where we feel calmer or the brain starts to quiet or we feel kind of you know more blissed out, that's also a great thing. But what I remind people of is that regardless of the experience that you're having, as long as you're being gentle with yourself, returning to your practice, you're doing great good for your body and mind. I don't know, guys. Jesse Israel might have just converted me to attempt to at least attempt, <laughs> which is crazy. I'm the type of person that when I meditate, like every bad thought that could possibly like come to my mind comes to my mind. And I think I think maybe that's where my my thought process is wrong in the sense that like I think mm -hmm. that you have to somewhat control the thoughts in your mind. And it sounds like what you're saying is like letting them kind of come and go instead of just being hard on yourself. That is absolutely it. And I, I do recommend that, that people practice meditation with some guidance, if that's either an app or if that's working with a teacher, someone like myself or someone like Light, that can actually uh, you know, give an individual some framework. Like what I'm really passionate about and what I tend to do, you know, I, I have guided meditations and you know, things on the Big Quiet Instagram with Audible, like stuff that people can listen to. But what I, I, I'm really extra passionate about is training people on how to be self-sufficient meditators for life. 
right? So it's like spending three 90 minute sessions with a person or with a group of people to really help people understand what's happening in the body and mind and giving people those permissions to be human when they meditate, which is what you're talking about. And then we're able to really start to understand that when we meditate, it is not about how we feel when we're meditating, right? Sometimes we're restless. Sometimes the brain's going crazy. Sometimes we feel relaxed and sleepy, whatever it is. It's not about how we feel when we meditate. It's about how our lives shift once our eyes are open, right? So what we're doing when we're meditating is shifting our physiology, our nervous system, our brains. And when we open our eyes and move back into our lives, the differences and the changes that we see are really what it's about. Hey, LA listeners. I have a really exciting promotion for all of you today from my go-to dispensary in LA, Sweet Flower. Sweet Flower is a curated cannabis boutique here in Los Angeles with four locations, Studio City, Melrose, Arts District, and Westwood. They offer a full menu delivery throughout Los Angeles with everything from edibles to joints to tinctures and topicals. What I love about Sweet Flower is that their mission is to set a whole new standard for modern cannabis retail that is inclusive, diverse, and approachable for everybody. So whether you're can of curious or flower fluent, Sweet Flower has the bouquet that's right for you. I am definitely no expert in the cannabis space, but I love Sweet Flower for their custom-created kits. To take the guesswork out of consuming cannabis, Sweet Flower has created kits based on how you want to feel. So whether you want to drift off to sleep, soothe tired muscles, or even just have a little fun, there's a kit that's right for you. They make it so easy to get some of my favorite things, like Kiva's Camino gummies. I am so obsessed with the midnight blueberry flavor. It's really helped me sleep during quarantine. Tabriz's citrus CBD mint that helps with any stress or anxiety. Plus, Sweet Flower created a give back kit with 100% of proceeds donated to the Black Cooperative Investment Fund and Equity First Alliance. When you're checking out, make sure to use code FOF15 for 15% off your first delivery at sweetflower.com. That's S-W-E-E-T-F-L-O-W-E-R.com. Have fun. Hi, I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra. My passion, calling, and job is really all about blending together holistic practices with real evidence-based science to help people around the world cultivate more optimism, success, and resiliency. You won't want to miss this new podcast as you'll get to hear from elite athletes, recording artists, couples, and maybe even my toddler. So if you're into arming yourself with some new practical happiness tools, join me on Mondays for your morning optimism dose. Oh, and don't forget, things are looking up. I know you talk a lot about the power of silence. And it's interesting because even in my field of work, which is the opposite of silence, all of my mentors and all the people that I look up to always tell me to lean into silence because the best things come after the silence. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what you think the power is of silence and what it does to the human spirit. When things get still and quiet or when the ocean settles and we move into that period where there's no, there's no sets in the ocean, it's really easy to panic, right? When there's no motion in the ocean, we can start to freak out. I know that that's been real for a lot of people right now because so many of our lives are either paused or shifted. I've definitely been feeling that. And what I have to remind myself of, and I think this is what your mentors have made clear to you, is that life is not just about the waves, right? Just as important as the waves are the moments of stillness, the, the moments where the ocean turns into the trough where the sets aren't coming 
where we can actually see the horizon line of the ocean, right? There's something really powerful when the waves rest to be able to really see the expansive view. And what I remind myself in these periods is that it's about the entire ocean, not just the waves. The waves are just as important as the moments of stillness. What we can learn from those moments of stillness, we're able to make sense of when we embrace and accept that those moments of stillness are critical to our growth, our learning, our discovery for ourselves. And in doing so, being willing to feel the discomfort that we face when things slow down. And I'm very much in that right now. It's so interesting to hear. Even everything you just said has so much to do, I think, with our age generation. Mm-hmm. We're so consumed by a million things all the time. I don't, I have to like actively force myself to sit still sometimes, which is insane mm-hmm. in theory. But I think what you've done so well and what you've really leaned into, and whether you notice it or not, at least I notice it from afar, is it's almost like you had to rebrand meditation for millennials or whatever you want to like call our age range. I hate that word. But like for, you had to almost like rebrand it for the modern time and take it away from what you were saying earlier, where people think meditation automatically has to do with like a very religious and Mm -hmm. spiritual Mm -hmm. practice of being quiet. Was that intentional? Did you ever have that thought process at all? Definitely. You know, when, when we first started gathering people to to meditate in my buddy's apartment, I mentioned the first one was just, you know, 20 people. The way that I wanted to uh, approach it was to create a space for us to gather and essentially practice wellness, but in a way that didn't feel like the way that we always think this stuff has to be. Because what I had seen was that I really respected people and practices, but oftentimes didn't feel like I was able to connect with a community or a yoga studio or uh, you know a certain belief system because of the way that it was presented. I wanted to have an opportunity for young people to come together in New York to meditate and for people to know that, hey, if you don't practice yoga or if you don't, you know, if you're not into crystals, I love crystals, by the way, um, you know, or <laughs> I do too. I was like, you know, it's not mutually exclusive, <laughs> you know, or, or if there aren't elements of your life that are more, let's say, wellnessy or new agey, that this is still for you. So I just wanted to create a, a, a space and a community and a practice and a brand that welcomes that. Because when we're able to do that, I think I think well-being becomes more inclusive and more accessible for people. And that's a huge part of my mission. I mean, you're literally guiding mass meditations like in Central Park and you have musical acts that follow up the meditation. Like the way that you've thought about it is like you've taken something that's traditionally something that's like very private and I feel like puts you in a very vulnerable position and you've turned it into like a large scale event for everybody in like the middle of Manhattan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like the, the, like the contrast there is so stark. I mean, I appreciate you acknowledging that. I I think that's, that's why a lot of it clicked for people. You know, the big quiet was born out of New York. And before we started touring the big quiet to different cities, we only did events in New York. And I think part of why it grew fast and worked was because we were gathering thousands of people to get quiet together in one of the busiest cities in the world, in some of the, you know, most hectic locations in the world, you know, and, and also to be able to do things like we did a mass meditation at Madison Square Garden on the arena uh, floor, you know, the top of the World Trade Center um, on the ground at ground zero, you know, places that hold cultural value, but also that hold, um, you know, pain and real human experience and to be able to slow down 
to, you know, welcome all of that. And then to be able to celebrate through community, through music, um, is a really important part of this work. And it is that stark contrast that I think um, uh, has helped amplify the importance of what we do. How has location, especially with what you just said, impacted your own practice, especially when you're, there's probably a big difference between meditating on the top of the World Trade Center or meditating mm-hmm. in your home? Yeah. How has it just kind of even changed the way that you're thinking during Well, there, there are a couple pieces to it. One is meditating by oneself versus meditating in a group. They're both, they're both really incredibly meaningful. And also, I think both are also really important. So much vulnerability there in, in, in meditating with a massive group That's like really that. true. That wasn't something that I had considered until, until we started to have these larger experiences. But there was something almost awkward about doing it in groups and we started gathering in groups, right? But there was something, you know, there is something about, I like to give people permission to feel whatever they're feeling when they meditate, right? So part of how I guide the big quiet experience is is taking people through their breath, noticing their body, but then moving them into their hearts and and taking the opportunity with tons of people around you in total silence to feel into your heart and and allow yourself to just welcome and be with whatever you're feeling there and, and to not resist it or to not judge it. And when we give ourselves permission, especially in community with groups, people, to just feel into the emotions, right? To just be ourselves. It's crazy what it can bring up. And doing it as an, as, as an act in, in, with other people, I think it makes the experience extra powerful. So, you know, we see a lot of people cry. There's a lot of emotion in being able to have that permission together. So when you're doing that um, at a location that also holds like cultural value, it, it can just heighten the, the kind of ex- emotional and connective experience there. Yeah, it's incredible. Since you brought up Oprah, thank you so much for teeing that up for me. I would love to hear how that partnership came together because I think that's probably the partnership of a <laughs> lifetime. Yeah, it, w- it really, it was definitely a peak life experience. We, so the big quiet uh, tours and on our last tour in October, we stopped through Chicago we went to the Museum of Natural History there and we did a big quiet in front of Maximum Titanosaur, which is the biggest, the biggest dinosaur of all time. Really cool experience in space. We were really lucky to have some of Oprah's team join us. A lot of her team is based in Chicago. They just really liked it. And, and it started a conversation between how the big quiet could work more with WW and Oprah. It, it, it landed at me being invited to speak at and lead a mass meditation at the first stop only of Oprah's WW tour, the arena tour, which was, which, which kicked off in January. So I was super stoked for that experience. And I had never been with an, a, a, you know, sold out stadium size group of people <laughs> speaking or leading meditations. And, and what they told me the day before the session was that I was going to have 10 minutes to do my talk about the importance of quiet in the age of noise to then lead a mass meditation. And then Oprah would come up on stage and Q&A me live in front of the arena. So I was like, damn, this is going to be a lot of new experiences at once. And it's also worth pointing out that Oprah was the main source of inspiration for me to move into this work five years ago, because I loved the way that she was normalizing and celebrating human conversations you know, in a mass media way, which she did through her show. So I was very inspired by Oprah. And, it, and she is a lot of what gave me the courage to start having those open conversations that we 
baked into the very first MediClub experience. So this is very full circle. Anyways, that first event went really well. There was a feeling during the, 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 the quiet, the meditation, there's a segment where we take 60 seconds of total silence. We stop the bulls. I stop guiding the meditation and we just sit there in the arena, total stillness. And there was just a feeling there. And, you know, Oprah's show, it was seven hours long. So we just had this little moment in this longer show, but it felt like it added some, it created a moment of value for people. A couple of days after Oprah's producer, Mel called me and said that, you know, Oprah and her team really liked it and wanted Jackie and I to come on the entire tour. And the next tour stop was in three days. I just moved from New York that day. So it was a lot of change happening at once, but I jumped right on it and we got to have a pretty incredible experience. <laughs> that's incredible. That is so awesome. I feel like that as crazy it must've been in that time, like that's like your dominoes. It was really right cool there. because I'll tell you like a year ago from that point, I was feeling so low. And, and, and even though the big quiet, you know, we'd, we'd had some really cool accomplishments under our belt. And, you know, we, we built a brand that was growing and helping people, you know, there've been so many moments o- over the past five years of running the big quiet where I was just really questioning it. It's just been really different for me to not be running a traditional startup or working at, you know, a, a bigger corporation or company like a lot of my of peers. And it was, it was, it's moments like that. Right, where like where I get to share the stage with Oprah and share this thing that I care about so much with so many people and see it affect them, that have been really important reminders that I am on my path, even though my path is very unique and different than a lot of my peers, especially my male peers. You know, for for people who are listening to this, who have who are feeling called to doing it differently than the society around you or the way you were raised or the way that you see your friends, family doing things. I just want to use this story as an example that like this stuff is possible if we really stay committed to the service that we're extending our work to. It's like, I like to think of what are the greatest needs of our time and how can we use our gifts and the things that excite us and our platforms to serve that, even if it feels scary, even if it's different than what other people do. And once we give ourselves to that, it's really challenging, but really special stuff can happen. And that Oprah tour was one of those important moments for me in that, in that path. It's interesting to hear you talk about being different from your peers and not falling victim to like the busy culture and the stress and male ego and all of that. But you're also the founder of your own business that you've absolutely propelled to success. So where have you found the balance in that where it's like you don't really want to subscribe to busy culture, but you also want to run a business and do it right? I love that question, Liv. I think it's so important. I guess about three and a half or so years into running the big quiet, I reached this point where uh, it was it was at the end of every year, I would look back on the year and I would kind of reflect on how the year went. And consistently what I was seeing was happening was I was feeling totally depleted and wiped out. I felt like I was way behind compared to my peers. I, you know, wasn't, I didn't, I, I didn't, I wasn't building something that had the valuation of the startups that I saw my friends doing, or I didn't have, you know, which is bullshit <laughs> yeah, or, anyways, guys. <laughs> or, you know, w- whatever my comparison point was for that moment. And I would feel shitty. You know, I, I was like beating myself up through this lens. But then I would pause and I'd go, but what have I actually given myself to? And I would look at the things that I was able to create and generate through the big quiet and the work that we were doing and understanding that, especially with the privilege that I have in my life, 
my life is so fucking good and was able to go, you know what? I'm no longer going to define my success and my workload and my happiness based off of what I see other people doing and what I think I want to do. And it was about really just a year and a half ago where I implemented some changes because I knew that I just didn't want to have another year go by and do that end of year reflection and feel that way. So I created something called sustainable success, just like a little program that I created for myself, which was instead of placing all of my value and energy around success being about growth and how much money I can make, or you know how many followers I can build on social media, whatever these kind of more traditional metrics are, I said, what if the way that I define success in my life is more than just that? What if it is, yes, making a living is important to me, but how can I get realistic about the living I want to make? So it's like, how can I get clear about the, the living that makes sense for me. So it's not like I need to have a billion dollar startup like Elon Musk. <laughs> I, I want to be able to have goals that I can work towards that will allow me to live the life that I want to live, keep it, keep it in, in, in a range that feels aligned with what's important to me. But not just how to, not, it's not just about what's the amount of money that I want to make and get realistic about that, but it's, is my work energizing me or depleting me? There are elements of my work that are wiping me out. Are there ways that I can get creative to create solutions for me to do more of the stuff that makes me feel alive, less of the stuff that wipes me out. Another part of it was, how can I be working in a way where I can take time for myself to actually take care of myself? So for me, it's having time to exercise, having time to you know eat well, having time to show up in community. I was getting so wiped out from my work and from like trying to achieve and grow that I wouldn't want to do things socially. I'd be so tired. And then the fifth piece to, to sustainable success for me was making sure that I'm making space to be able to show up for the people that I care about. Because there was too many times where I couldn't be there for my friends or my family because I had to get this thing done or write that email or prepare for this announce. So in sum, this concept of sustainable success may mean saying no to things that generate more money or more growth in the short term so that we can have more time to enjoy our lives and more space to prioritize things that allow us to feel successful in a more holistic and full way. And this is a really tough concept because for most of us, we don't say no when there's an opportunity to have more scale with our businesses or there's an opportunity for more money. And I understand that not all of us are in positions where we can say no, but for a lot of us, it's just about more, 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 more. And to be able to say no, to be able to say no to some of it, so we can have more space to focus on something else. What it winds up doing is like, like ourselves. ourselves, like the people we care about, like, like ourselves. <laughs> it creates, I, yeah. I like to think of it as, a, as it, it creates like a new type of soil. I wish every person in America, but specifically men in America had that ideology. To me, like you almost feel like a spiritual advisor in a way as well. Spiritual might be the wrong as well, wrong word for it exactly, but like spiritual in terms of like coming becoming more in touch with yourself and like your inner spirit. And I'm sure so many people have come to you during this time and asking for advice in terms of like how to cope with what yeah, it's true. A, a lot of people have, and that's you know part of what's been really interesting about this process has been, and this is I think something that needs to be talked about and celebrated for people that consider themselves to be teachers and leaders is that it is okay to go through our own shit while also being able to help other people go through their shit. And, wow. and you know, I was faced with that. I came off of this tour 
and was so ready to go take a break. I was going to go to Australia and spend time with my teacher and just kind of disconnect and deep dive in knowledge. But what wound up happening was three days after the tour ended, pandemic kicked in and the world started to change around us. And what I saw was at a time when I really needed rest, people were stepping up and saying, we need help. We are, there's a, more of a need to focus on our mental health than, than before. So you know, I, I had to make a choice to either lean into that or to fall back. And the decision that I made was to go through my own shit and take the space on a daily basis to rest. For me, it was two hours off my phone where I would take a bath. But then those other hours showing up, moving through my own shit, feeling mad uncomfortable about what I was going through, making sense of it all, but also helping people, doing Instagram lives, doing guided meditation sessions, doing virtual mass meditations for companies, like really showing up for it, even though I was going through it too. And that's important and that's okay. And I think it was also, you know, just, just something that I will be able to learn from and apply to all of my teaching and work moving forward. Just want to name that. But in regards to your question about purpose, for me, yeah, I think reconnecting people to their power is really important right now. And the ways that I think I, I can I can lend my my work and my gifts to that greater purpose is really through leadership. It's teaching and and facilitating opportunities for people to get unblocked and to move through the stress and the anxiety and the disconnect that so many of us are feeling right now through meditation, you know, through cultivating the self and then through creating the opportunities for people to be in community, to, to you know, be reminded that we belong to, to each other. Like what you do with your pod, which I love so much and why I'm so honored to be on this podcast is because it really does create a sense of humanness, a sense of belonging, right? When people come on your show and they hear how vulnerable you are, and there are people talking about the type of things that you and I are talking about, even though listeners aren't here with us, we're reminded of our humanity, reminded of our interconnectedness when we talk about real shit. <laughs> and thank you. I really appreciate you It's a great service that. That, that you provide through this platform because I think, I think reminding people of their humanness and having these moments where we feel like we belong as humans are a really critical piece to reclaiming our power. It's that feeling that we have when we have a conversation or listen to a conversation where we can go, oh, me too. I feel that also. I feel healed by that. I feel validated by that. For me, it's about the self-work of meditation and it's about the social work of community. And when they come together, it creates a supercharge and a reconnect in people's power. And, in, and, and when we have that, when we have more people in their power, people start to show up for how they can really meaningfully contribute to the world. Jesse is now going to close out the episode by guiding us through a quick five-minute meditation. So if you're in the place to continue, get comfortable. I want to suggest that we do something a little different than what I would usually do for a closing meditation. Because I mentioned this cool. earlier on the call, I talked about emotions. This is the practice that we did when we were on tour with Oprah with arenas of people. And I think it would be cool to, to feel into it here. And we'll give ourselves just a few minutes to move into it. And before we close our eyes and practice... Um, just a reminder of what I said before, which is that it's it's so common for our minds to wander. It doesn't mean that you're bad at meditation. It just means that you're a human being. And when you notice that your mind wanders, just be easy with yourself and, and really lovingly and gently bring your attention back to my guidance. And if you find that your mind continues to wander, then just when you realize it's wandered very gently, very lovingly, bring your attention back to my voice and open yourself up to whatever experience you're going to have. It's only going to be a couple minutes. And I'll let you know when it's time to come out. So let's go ahead and close our eyes. 
And we'll start by taking a big breath into the belly, up into the chest, and letting it out. Another big breath into your belly, air expanding into your lungs and chest, and letting it out. And one last big breath, filling up your belly, air moving into your chest and holding the air for a moment and then letting it all out, allowing the body to relax. Just noticing your body as it starts to settle, slowing down for a second. Noticing your feet and your ankles, noticing your knees, your thighs, your hips. And let gravity pull you down into your seat. Noticing your lower back, middle back, up to where your shoulders meet your neck. Allowing yourself to release any tension that you may be feeling in your neck and shoulders. And now bringing your attention to your nose, just notice the air very gently moving in and out of your nostrils as you breathe. Noticing your chest as it rises and falls as you breathe at your own natural pace. Noticing your body as it breathes by itself. Now bringing your attention to your heart. Notice any emotions or sensations that you may be feeling in your heart. Accept it. Allow yourself to feel whatever you're feeling without resisting it, without judging it. Knowing that so many of us are feeling lots of emotions right now. And it's so easy to feel like we are alone in this process. But in this moment, we remember that we're together in what we feel. And knowing and remembering that we are exactly where we need to be right now. in our growth and learning and formation into who we are as people. And before we end our practice, I'd like for you to take a moment to think about someone that you love. And this can be someone that's alive or someone that's passed on. Think about this person. Imagine them sitting across from you. Looking into their face, seeing them smile. Connecting with the sensation of joy and love that you have for this person. And send this person your love in whatever way that may look like or feel like for you, feeling your heart open, feeling love through your body, thinking of this person and sending them your love, welcoming any emotions that may be coming up.
And if it feels good to you, you can put a hand on your heart. Move the attention to yourself, thinking about an area in your life where you've been tough on yourself, where you've been maybe beating yourself up, an area where you can apply more gentleness, more compassion. And send yourself love and feeling your heart open and filling yourself up with love for yourself, remembering that so much of our power comes from our ability to love ourselves first. And just feeling the goodness to love ourselves for where we're at right now in this moment. And knowing that this creates a foundation for us to meaningfully show up in the world in the ways that the world needs us right now. By slowing down, by noticing the breath, by feeling into and welcoming our emotions, by connecting with love for others, for ourselves. We take a final moment of gratitude for what we've shared together on this podcast, people tuning in from all over the world. Gratitude for Liv and for creating this platform that has helped and healed and brought joy to so many of us. And gratitude for our lives, for our beating hearts. Gratitude for the ability to breathe, for the gift that is life. You can take your hand off your heart if you had it there. Take one last big breath into the belly, up into the chest. Letting it all out. And as you feel ready, you can begin to slowly open your eyes. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Bs. See you next week.